0: Take your copy of God's Word and open it up with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, I think you have written on your bulletin that's 22 through 32 this morning, but uh, as with some of the texts that I get into, I did not make it that far, so we're going to go from about 22 to 28. Uh, We've been really working our way through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke, and we're coming to a portion of Scripture today that I... I think and I hope will be helpful to every single one of us in this room today. As a a pastor who comes up here to preach and teach from week to week and try to figure out what I'm going to say on a Sunday morning, uh, I have as much need for this as any of us here today in this room. But what it has to do with is probably one of our favorite pastimes and probably one of the easiest sins that we can so easily get ourselves entangled into and tripped up on, and that is the sin of worry. Now, I think it's important from the outset here for us to exercise a little caution and make sure that we understand exactly what Jesus is talking about here when he said to do not worry, or literally, in another way you could say it is do not be anxious. We could often confuse being anxious about something... With that of being eager, you know, we can think about maybe our kids on a, uh, being anxious to open up their presents on a uh, Christmas morning, or even how a, a parent might be a little anxious at their kid's junior varsity volleyball game, in which it's the best two out of three games, and the team has never won a game ever, and it's down to the third game, and they start from behind eight points under. They come back and then it's match point for their team, then match point for your team, then match point for their team, and they finally win. So you can get a little anxious or a little maybe a little eager to see your kid's team win the game. But that's not exactly what we're talking about in our text here this morning. When Jesus tells us not to worry or don't be anxious, What he's really talking about is an uneasiness of mind, or you might say it, a fearful concern. Uh, The word worry is really an old English word, uh, a term that literally means to choke or to strangle. And and so it's more appropriate, I think, for us and helps our understanding a bit if we grasp the meaning of worry to be that of strangling the mind. It's debilitating, it's limiting, and it ends up controlling us to the point that we neglect our responsibilities and our relationships. Someone made the remark one time that worrying is kind of like being in a rocking chair. It'll certainly give you something to do, but you just won't get very far by doing it, right? It'll get you absolutely nowhere. Now, there's been all kinds of advice giving in popular Christian circles about what we should do with worry. How do we manage it? How do we solve the problem of worry and anxiety? Now, if we would survey some of the Christian books out there that's uh, on the topic of worry or anxiety, we would find that they are really all over the place and all over the spectrum as to what we should do. For example, a, a pair of highly popular Christian counselors wrote this about how to deal with worry and anxiety from their professional opinion. They said this, quote, "...we suggest setting aside 15 minutes in the morning and another 15 minutes in the evening for active worry. If concerns surface during the other times of the day, the person should jot them down on a card and then vow to deal with them during the designated periods." Worry-free living involves confining natural worry that we all feel into designated time slots of the day that comprises of 1% of a 12-hour day. So for someone to say that we should take and manage our worry down to 1% of the day is like saying that we should really indulge in any other sin that plagues us, that comes naturally to us, provided that we just do it, about 15 minutes at a time. But that is neither wise, nor is it biblical counsel. And sadly, as I said, they, these are supposedly Christian counselors, and they sell millions upon millions of books to the masses. Another lady I heard on a podcast the other day said that she suffers from generalized anxiety disorder. And I suppose that you could probably have a disorder for just about anything these days, but she apparently suffers from this disorder and found that social media was the cause and the tipping point for her worry and anxiety. But what you might find surprising to hear, and I'm not making this up, her solution and her cure for anxiety was to take more silly pictures of herself and then post them on Instagram rather than engaging on Facebook and Twitter. She should change her websites in which she engages the outside world with and not to take herself too seriously to help with this disorder. It's not a joke. It's real. Okay, I can get you the reference if you want. So if you're sitting there thinking about uh, how to look to maybe essential oils for a remedy, you'd be pleased to know that not Martha had come up with this, but uh, you'd be pleased to know that there is a book available that's entitled, quote, Essential Oils for Depression, The Ultimate Beginner's Guide to Beating Depression, Anxiety, and Stress with Oil. Now, all of these arguments really are superficial methods to try and mask the symptoms of anxiety, but ultimately, they're really unhelpful, and none of them are even biblical, If you were to survey survey the entire Bible, you will never find anything that comes near to the suggestion that we should compartmentalize our worry into just 1% of our day, or rub a little oil on it, or that you should just make fun of yourself in the situation that you're in, and the situation you're dealing with, and everything's going to be okay. But on the contrary... As we're going to see in our text today, we're going to find that just the opposite is true. We're going to find that Jesus said that we shouldn't do it. It's a commandment from the Lord Himself. If Jesus says that we shouldn't do it, and then we turn around and do it, it's a sin. So, for you as a Christian, a beloved of God, not only is worry a strangling of your mind, But worry is nothing less than your judgment in your faith and your confidence in God. It's a sinful failure for you to exercise complete trust in your Heavenly Father. So if you're there with me in our text of Luke chapter 12, I want us to read it together as a congregation, starting in verse 22, and we'll read all the way down to verse 32. If you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, I want to invite you to do so. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 22. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word says this. And He said to His disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on, For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life's span? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek first His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we just... Thank you for your word, and thank you for its consoling us and encouraging us and strengthening us, Lord. Help it to uh, do its work here today. Father, we thank you for sending your Son, our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Help our minds to be instructed, help us to be good listeners as we hear what you have to say and speak through a mere man. Father, it's this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you'll recall from last week, Jesus had just got done correcting a man who sort of just interrupted Jesus, as it were, and he asked him to settle a dispute between his brother over an inheritance. And immediately, Jesus tells this guy that he's not here to settle these material disputes between individuals. He's not here to judge between two parties over petty matters as to whether they've been wronged or not over material goods. Instead, Jesus gave the man what he needed and not what he wanted. So then he turns to his disciples and the crowd that's around them, and he deals with a spiritual issue that is the root problem, and he tells them, beware and be on their guard against every form of greed. They are to be alert. They're to take a defensive position against the possibility of greed entering into their minds and their hearts. And to illustrate that point, he tells them a parable. And that's what the word parable means, by the way. It means to bring alongside something for comparison. In, in, the, uh, in the ships in naval warfare, you had two ships coming beside one another. That's kind of the thing we're looking at, a parable with what Jesus is teaching. But the parable there was of a man who we saw exhibited three characteristics of a gritty person, And that was, he was a selfish man as he accumulated himself many crops and many goods, and he wanted to store them for himself. Secondly, he thought he was a self-made man, and he did not consider God into any of his equations of life. And then we saw that he was a self-satisfied man, and he, he thought that his material possessions would bring him lasting joy and security. He made the triple mistake of never considering God, never considering others, and never considering his own mortality. And so we had to ask ourselves those same important questions of ourselves in terms of our money and our possessions. Are you one who considers God when you buy something such as a a home or a car or something you want or you need? Do you even ask the question, Will this help me, or will this hinder me from serving the Lord? Will it free you up to completely devote yourself to Him, or will it only enslave you with maintenance and upkeep and debt and monthly payments and so on and so forth? Have you been seduced by the world's philosophy and the world's thinking that you should get as much as you possibly can, and then keep it all for yourself and attempt to approve your lifestyle and your comfort and your quality of life? Or do you ever consider the needs of others and give freely and charitably? When was the last time you gave to anyone in which you were never going to receive anything in return? Have you considered God? Have you considered others? And have you considered your own mortality when it comes to your money and your possessions? These are some questions that we need to ask of ourselves in light of Jesus' teaching that the abundance of our lives does not come from our possessions, from back in verse 15 there. Our happiness, our joy, our satisfaction, our contentment, our riches, our peace, will never come from our money or our possessions in this life. But all of those things will be ours when we are rich in God. Happiness, joy, peace, contentment, satisfaction, richness. J.C. Ryle said this when he was asked the question, When can it be said of a man that he is rich towards God? And He answered this way, Quote, Never till he is rich in grace, "...rich in faith, rich in good works, never till he has applied to Jesus Christ and brought him gold tried by fire, never till he has a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, never till he has a name inscribed in the book of life and is an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, such a man is truly rich, his treasure is incorruptible, his bank never breaks, his inheritance fadeth not away." Man cannot deprive him of it. Death cannot snatch it out of his hands. All things are his already. Life, death, things present and things to come. And best of all, what he has now is nothing compared to what he will have thereafter. So then in... Verse 22 of our text this morning, knowing that what he said might have created a little anxiety within the hearts of his disciples, he turns to them and he says in verse 22, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing, clothing, excuse me. Now, at first glance, you might wonder how it is that Jesus connected these two subjects together of greed and worry. But truth be told, they're really inseparable. The moment we think about giving our money and our possessions away, we might be tempted to worry about whether we're going to have enough and everything we need. And then we start to worry if we'll have enough for ourselves. And then we can start to become greedy again. And so on and so on it goes. But more than that, the connection here is abundantly clear in that greed and worry have the same root cause. And that root cause is a lack of trust in God. Now, you have to understand, for Jesus to come and say such a thing to first century century Israel people and to his disciples, this would have been a radical statement for them to hear. They lived in a daily state of trying to provide enough food for themselves and their families, and most of their time was committed to this purpose. They were to grind the grain. They had to get the wood to cut. They had the fires to stoke, animals to hunt. Uh, And the majority of their time wasn't really committed on changing the window treatments in their home or aerating their lawn or popping down to their local Piggly Wiggly or Kroger to go pick up that pre-made chicken and a loaf of French bread for dinner. The majority of their lives and their time was committed to basic survival. And all of that hinged greatly on all kinds of variables such as the weather, which may not produce the rain necessary to grow the crops. It uh, it depended upon insects who may come and destroy all of their hard work and their labors. Sometimes the snow would not fall on the mountains and which would in turn uh, decrease the stream flow or the rivers to run in which they would need for irrigation. So, so as a result, all of that might potentially produce a famine, something that we really have a hard time identifying with or even understanding with all of our agricultural technologies and the abundance of our supermarkets. But if there were no crops, there was no money there was no income. And if there was no income, there was no way to purchase clothing. Their lives and their livelihood were totally dependent upon the natural resources that were around them. And so for the disciples to hear such a thing as uh, this coming from the lips of Jesus, they would have been in a little bit of shock, to say the least. But as I thought of those things, I wondered how much of our worry is because of our narcissistic culture and the country that we live in. How much of our worry that we have today is because we live in a time and a place of luxury and affluence? Most people in this world don't have uh, the problems to worry about that we have today, and that our paint's peeling off our houses or that part of it still needs stained, or that the driveway needs graded and leveled off, or the blacktop needs sealed, or that our master bathroom is only half finished, or this little thing needs done, and so we worry and we fret about when it's all going to get done. I mean, in light of this week's events and what's recently happened with these uprisings in Egypt and Turkey and Syria and all these earthquakes that have been happening in uh, Italy and Myanmar and Nepal, do we really honestly have a right to worry about much at all? None of us woke up this morning wondering if we're going to be able to eat today. None of us woke up wondering whether there's going to be a coup on our government. None of us woke up today concerned whether the water was going to turn on inside of our homes. None of us woke up wondering if our house was going to still be standing. But do we even have a legitimate right to be worriers about such things? Life is more than about your unfinished house project. Life is about more that your car is getting a wee bit older in years and more miles. Life is more than about your business or your job. Life is more than about anything temporal that you own and you think about and you worry about. But Jesus tells his disciples here, don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothes because life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Even Paul would re- reiterate this later to his beloved Timothy in 1 Timothy six eight. He said, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But when Jesus says to them, don't worry about food and don't worry about clothing, what he's saying to them and us is that your life is more important than when you're going to get to your next meal, and your body is more than just something for you to adorn with the latest fashion and styles. That food that you will eat today, that may sustain you temporarily, but ultimately, it's God that sustains you because He is the one who gives you life. He is the one who gives you breath. He is the one who gives you all things, as Acts 17.25 tells us, and that clothing that you're wearing, that's great. But ultimately, you want garments of salvation. You want the robe of righteousness that Christ can provide and wrap you with, as Isaiah 61.10 tells us. That's the things you should be longing for. Your life and your body were created by God and for God and are sustained by God, and it's done for the ultimate glory of God. Those things aren't the ends, but they are the means to the end of you enjoying God and living with him forever. This is why Jesus could tell Satan back in Luke 4.4 4, that man does not live by bread alone. Are you a content person when it comes to your possessions? I mean, we live in a gluttonous society in which we, we live things to the maximum, right? We want things bigger. We want things better. We want things newer. We want things more full. But let me ask you something. Are you gluttonous for God? Do you ever say to yourself when you wake up in the morning that I must know Him? I must have more of Jesus Christ. I must know Him. Do you ever ask yourself that question? Because that's where your life comes from. He should be the center of your universe, He should be your goal and your prize. He should be what you fix your eyes upon. He's whom you should be chasing after. He is the one who should be preeminent in your life, and He should be up and above and over anything in your life. Is that true of you today? Is that whom you are chasing after? Or are you chasing after the world's goods, the world's things, the world's philosophies? You should be pursuing Jesus Christ. Life is more than food or clothing, Jesus tells us. And we should not be worried and consumed about such things. Why? Because it is God who cares for you and will take care of you. And so to illustrate that point, he gives them two examples from creation. Look at verse 24 with me. He says, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them how much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Now, you can almost picture Jesus on a hillside somewhere. And and he's just looking out and about, and he's seeing a bird somewhere, and he's choosing kind of what's naturally around him. And just pointing it out to his disciples and saying, look at that bird for a moment. Consider that raven over there, right? So first of all, I think it's important to kind of note that of all the birds that Jesus would have picked, he picked a raven. Because a raven was not necessarily a very attractive bird or even a really desirable one to have around at that. They're scavengers and they'll eat just about anything. And under the Old Testament, a raven was considered ceremonially unclean as an animal, meaning you didn't want to touch it. You didn't want to be around it. It's a dirty bird, right? Even Leviticus eleven fifteen 15 goes so far as to call the raven detestable. And so he's picking the lowliest or the least desirable bird that he can find. And he says to his disciples, consider the facts about this bird that nobody Wants to have around. He's going to make an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, Look at this undesirable, detestable bird. They don't grow crops. They don't plan ahead for their food. They don't store anything, but yet, nonetheless, God feeds them on a daily basis. Now, this isn't an argument that you should quit your job or that you should stop working and that God is just going to start you know, having deliveries to your door of groceries every day. The point isn't that you should live like a raven, because ravens and birds do work for, your, for their food. You've never seen a bird sitting around taking a nap. They're always busy. They're on the go. They're always on the move doing something. And, and we do sow, and we do reap, and we do store, but they don't. But the point that Jesus is making is that if God so provides for the raven, the lowliest of birds, why is there any cause for worry from you who are made in the image of God? Why would you fret and be anxious about anything in light of the fact that God so cares for a detestable bird when you are far more valuable than they? And notice that it says, how much more valuable you are than birds! exclamation point. Not a question mark. This isn't a question to be asked and answered. This is an emphatic imperative statement. You are infinitely more valuable than a raven whom God so does care for and graciously provides everything they need. Will not God do the same for you? I couldn't help but... Think of Daryl Gabbard, who preached here a couple weeks ago. And he talked about the death of his son. And how hard that was to go through, a 30-some-year-old. And he said he didn't know how he was going to make it through that funeral. He didn't know. But he went up front and he sat. And I'm not sure there are many of us in this room that could even comprehend or understand what that might be like what's going through his mind, and what's going through his heart. But he said that as he was sitting there in that front row, and he's listening to the eulogy from the pastor, that he had this overwhelming sense of peace come over him. It was not the peace with God, but it was the peace of God. And he said it was very real. It was most assuredly real at that very moment. And he said to us, People, it's real. It is real. God provided for Daryl what exactly he needed at that time, right on time. So Jesus, back in our text, in verse 25, he says, "...and which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life span?" If you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? In other words, what he is saying is worrying will gain you nothing. Worrying will not gain you another day to your life. Worrying will not extend your time. But in reality, about worry, the exact opposite is true. It never adds anything, but it always subtracts. Worry is kind of like a thief. It steals from us. Worrying will sometimes rob you of a good night's sleep. Worrying will sometimes steal you of your health. Worrying will rob you of your joy. But worst of all, and most importantly, worrying will rob you of your faith and your confidence in God. That's why Jesus asked the rhetorical question. He says, which which of you can add a single hour to your life's span? But just as soon as he asks the question, he gives the answers and says, if you can't even do such a thing, why worry? Why worry? Worry and anxiety will never add to your lifetime that God has so determined. But it will rob you of your fullness of your life with God. And then he goes on in verse 27 to the second thing he wants us to consider. And he says, consider the lilies in verse 27 there. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? So he directs the attention of his disciples to some little flowers that might be nearby. And he says to them, if God squanders such lavish beauty to flowering plants and they grow effortlessly, what will he do for his beloved children who are made in his image? What will he do for those whom he's purchased and redeemed with the gift of his son? What will he do for his children, whom he has predestined to adoption as sons? Even Solomon, who was one of the wealthiest men on earth and was clothed with the finest of clothes and one of the most lavishly dressed men in all of Israel, could not clothe himself in such beauty and such design and such variety as God could with the flowers. And he asked another rhetorical question by asking, if God clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and then gathered up tomorrow to be thrown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? Meaning that if God beautifully and he majestically clothes something that is perishable one day or something that is temporal and it has a, a little value only to have it thrown into the furnace the next day, how much more will God take care of you? Again, it's that argument from the lesser to the greater. If the beautiful lilies and the grass which God sustained and He has created one day and has so little value to be burned for cooking fuel the next, how much more will God provide for you whom He has set His affections on? How much more will He take care of you whom He has called and He has justified with the precious blood of His Son? And he says to his disciples, he says, you men of little faith. He's saying to these disciples and us, he's saying, think about it. When you worry about such mundane things in in your life as in food and clothing, you're expressing a lack of trust in God. You're saying God doesn't care. You're saying God's not willing. You're saying that God does not have the power or the ability. You're saying that God does not have the resources But the Bible repeatedly demonstrates for us that God will provide everything that we will ever need and it will always be right on time if we'll only trust Him and not worry. Our God is in the business of taking seemingly impossible situations with very little resources that appears to us and taking them and turning them around for our good and for His glory. But if God is able and willing to supply us and sustain us with the mundane things and the basics of life, such as food and clothing, isn't he able to do so with the big things? Can he not part the waters? Can he not shut the mouths of lions? Can he not make an axe head float and swim? Can he not even take a young man whom your daughter has become fond of and who happens to be an atheist? and save Him, and redeem Him? He most assuredly can. Ephesians 3.20, we read this this morning, He can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. What is it that you fear? What is it that has caused you to worry about, or has caused you worry on a daily basis? I want to stop this morning right here because I want to flesh this out a little bit more for myself. So I hope you will come back in a couple of weeks and indulge me a little more to dig into this further. But I want you to think about this this morning. When, when troubles seem to befall us and, and circumstances beyond our control, come to our doorstep, even though we're following Jesus Christ. And in many of these times, there is not a thing we can do to get out of them or to get rid of them. Maybe there's some trouble at work or school. Maybe it's an illness or a diagnosis that you've got. Maybe it's an economic hardship or a setback. Maybe it's a breakdown in a relationship or a strain with family and friends. The circumstances itself, we can't really get out of. But we find that we're just going to have to go through them, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Isn't the real issue that we don't necessarily get ourselves out of the circumstance, but isn't the issue that we get rid of the worry that comes with the circumstance? Isn't that the point that Jesus is really making here? Isn't the point really that we should fully trust God in all things, considering that he feeds the ravens and he clothes the lilies of the field? Isn't that what the psalmist was trying to capture in Psalm 23, verse 4, when he said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. When you have God on your side, you have no cause for worry or fear? Who will separate you from the love of God? What is it that you worry about that you haven't sought God's provision or God's wisdom? What situation do you find yourself in this morning that has caused you to start to worry and kind of create a bit of anxiety in your life and that you haven't casted it onto the broad shoulders of our mighty God? What have you been focused on that has been robbing you of your joy and robbing you of your peace and robbing you of your hope and causing you fear and worry? 1 Peter 5, 7 says that we should cast all our anxiety on Him because He cares for you. One of my favorite hymns puts it this way. It says, day by day and with each passing moment, Strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure, gives unto each day what he seems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest." Trust God with your worries and your cares this morning. Let's pray. Father, I readily admit that sometimes this is easier to say than it is to practice. And you knew that worry would be something that we might struggle with, which is why you turned to the disciples to teach them and to teach us this very important principle. Lord, help us to take whatever it is that we are worrying about and creating anxiety in our lives and to cast them to you and trust you for every provision, every need, every comfort. Help us to look to you for every good thing and depend upon you. Lord, for when we are weak, you are strong. Lord, we do thank you for this time and just pray that we might walk out of here strengthened and encouraged by your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, I would like you to stay with us for a meal or time of fellowship downstairs.